I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 4. Our scripture reading begins at verse 35, Mark chapter 4, 35 to 41. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version translation. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we would ask that your spirit would be the one helping us to understand this significant story in the Gospel of Mark. We pray that we would come to a clear and deeper understanding of who Jesus is. And we would pray that we would come to understand how this story and the lives of the disciples can be of great help to us as we go through difficulties in this life. And we would pray that we would so follow Jesus that in all of the affairs of life, how we live, how we conduct ourselves, sometimes when we were strong, so often when we were weak, nevertheless would still reflect to this world what it means to live as Christians what it means to be faithful to the calling to which we've been called, and what it means to be salt and light in this world. And this we would pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to begin by noting the first part of this passage, which speaks to on that day. And so let's think about what that day happens to refer to. We learn from a comparison of Matthew and Mark that this episode that takes place on the Sea of Galilee was that very same day that Jesus was, of course, preaching from the boat, which was also the same day that he preached and taught all of those parables. And even earlier that day, uh, it's the same day that he had answered the scribes and the Pharisees as they attacked him and accused him of doing everything he did under the power of Satan. Uh, It was also the day that Jesus had been visited by his mother and brothers, and they had wanted to take him back to Nazareth because they believed that he was out of his mind. So by this time... As evening is approaching, when he and his disciples embarked to the other side of the lake, Jesus had had one of the most challenging, uh, one of the most uh, difficult ministry days that we can possibly, possibly imagine. So he had begun actually indoors when Jesus was teaching to a packed out house. Then it had moved to the seashore, and then Jesus had been sitting on a boat. He was outside all day. Uh, there with the breezes, but also the open sunshine. 
And now evening has come, and they set sail to the other side of the lake, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And, of course, the story centers on the storm which they encounter, how the disciples react, and then how Jesus responds to the crisis of the storm and to the disciples. So it's a story that clearly is about faith. It's about how we react to challenging situations and especially situations that feel to us to be so threatening. Now, the simple story, the simple lesson, the simple truth that we get out of this is simply this. You are never in danger, even when Jesus is asleep. Or to flesh that out, because Jesus is the sovereign Son of God, Because he's sovereign over all of the forces of nature and all of the aspects of your life, even when you feel you are in a crisis and a situation of imminent threat, great danger, nevertheless, Jesus Christ himself with you will in fact carry you through such a situation and you will ultimately and always be protected by him. And along the way, Jesus' lack of immediate response according to your desires never indicates that Jesus is not there with you. So we can look at three lessons that we should see out of this passage. The first of which is, I think, well, all three are important, but the first of which I think is significant when we consider some of the bad teaching that's out there in the world today that is this, that even when you are faithfully obedient to Christ, Crises in life will still come. Life can still fall apart. That is a significant truth that we find illustrated in this passage. The second would be this, that that when we are faith, even when we are faithfully obedient to Christ, the crises we encounter may actually confound our confession of trust in Jesus. Even when we are faithfully following Jesus, a crisis can be so overwhelming that it can confound your confession of faith in Jesus. But then the last lesson is going to be that even when we prove to be fearful and even reproachful of Christ in the midst of these crises in life, Jesus proves to be gracious. And Jesus proves to be stronger than all the affairs that we're going through. Gracious to our weaknesses and sovereign over the crises of our lives. So coming back then to the first lesson, which is stated this way. Even when you and I are faithfully obedient to Jesus, crises and life come and our world may feel like it's falling apart. Now, why is that important to realize? We easily see that, well, if I'm not walking with Jesus, then, yeah, it, there's a great danger that life is going to fall apart. We can well understand that if you and I pursue a path that is clearly immoral, if we pursue a path in that direction of clear disobedience, that God, we're not in a place where God can bless us. We, we ought to understand that. In fact, it's often been said this way, sin will take us even though sin may look to be desirable, 
Sin will take us where we do not want to go. It will keep us where we do not want to stay. And it will cost us more than we can ever ultimately pay. God has designed the nature of life such as, as it says in the Proverbs, the way of the transgressor is hard. Now, I've read that in the Proverbs. You you and I have read that, and and I thought, not only is the way of the transgressor hard, but the way of the faithful is hard, too. But they're hard in different ways. And what we have here is, is not bad things happening because the disciples were living out of fellowship with Christ. We have, in fact, just the opposite. Look at verse 35. Jesus himself says, let's cross over to the other side. And that's what they are attempting to do. So, clearly, they're in the will of Jesus. Uh, Clearly, they're not only in the will of Jesus, but Jesus is with them. Uh, Clearly, we can say they're in the path of duty. They're actually following the will of God. They were doing and going and being exactly what God wanted them to do and to be and to follow him. Exactly according to the commands of God. Not only that, but consider the day that the disciples had experienced with Jesus. Throughout that day, they had been standing with Jesus in what Jesus was going through. So we have the religious leaders of Israel who have incredible authority, incredible spiritual gravitas, and they're accusing Jesus of blasphemy of the worst sort. You do what you do by the power of Satan. The disciples stand with Jesus when they see the religious leaders accusing Jesus this way. They don't back off, which many people might have said, whoa, let's just step back and see what's going on here with Jesus and the religious. They don't. They stand with him. We also see that Jesus' own family think that Jesus needs to need to come home to Nazareth and, and you know get engaged with a very good shrink. Because they consider Jesus to be out of his mind. But the disciples don't cave into that kind of an approach. They stand with Jesus even when the family wants to take him into custody. But think about this. Here they are standing with Jesus. They're being faithful to Jesus. And it leads directly to mortal danger. One of the worst forms of theological heresy that's been prevalent and and quite prevalent in the last 30 years in the United States is the idea that if you have enough faith, bad things won't happen to you. And you may have had this, you're going through a crisis and someone will say to you, well, you must be outside of the will of God. There's probably nothing more hurtful for someone to make that kind of awful accusation and a false claim against you. Well, obviously there's some hidden sin in your life that you need to repent of or you wouldn't be going through this kind of trouble. The disciples were exactly where they were supposed to be. And now their lives are in mortal danger. So, consider the reaction of the disciples then, which is the first part of the crisis. 
uh, well, the first part of the crisis is what the disciples faced. So let's think about this for a moment. Most of us have never been to Israel. I've never been there, but, you know, you've got Google Maps and you've got all that kind of stuff, and you can read what the topography of it all looks like. Do you know that the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level? The mountains to the northwest in Capernaum, where they were in the city, is in the northwest. The mountains up that direction rise up to 4,000 feet above sea level, which is 47 feet, 4,700 feet above the level of the sea. Those are mountains with canyons and valleys and all that kind of stuff. Over to the east and west, there are mountains that go up at least 2,000 feet, 2,700 feet above the level of the lake. If you know anything about conditions, you know that mountains around lakes produce strong, gusty winds, and they can come up unexpectedly. That's the case with the Sea of Galilee. Uh, winds could come down uh, easily. 40, 50, 60, 70 mile an hour gales can actually come down out of the mountains across the sea. They come up unexpectedly. They come up suddenly. So you have these raging storms that happen. That's what's happening to them. The result for them, high waves, treacherous boating conditions, even for the most experienced sailors. And, of course, one-third of the disciples are experienced sailors. You've got Peter and Andrew, James and John. They've been doing this all of their lives. But they know that they are in mortal danger. So Mark tells us that the waves are breaking over the boat, the sides of the boat. The boat is filling with water. There, the danger is imminent. Now, that's the crisis in terms of their situation environment. But the second part of the crisis is Jesus himself. You'll identify with this. The second part of the crisis is a Savior who is asleep. Now, at one level, the fact that Jesus is asleep is an incredible display of his humanity. Jesus has had, as we've already said, one of the most difficult, challenging ministry days, a day of conflict with religious leaders, a day of conflict with his own family members, long session teaching parables, sitting out in the sun, all of this. And at the end of it all, when he gets in the boat to travel across, he falls asleep. He stays asleep even when the storm begins to develop. Waves begin to howl. Wind begins to howl. Waves begin to fill the boat. You have to be dog-tired to stay asleep in such a situation. And Christ was incredibly physically, probably emotionally, maybe even spiritually drained and exhausted. And what tells you that Jesus in the incarnation was truly human? This story is one of the clear testimonies in terms of a narrative portion that says this tells us of the humanity of Christ. He was wiped out. Bishop J.C. Ryle, and I've quoted him a number of times during this series in his exposition of the Gospel of Mark, points out that it's this that connects to what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus being our great high priest because of his humanity is able to be sympathetic with us in all the conditions of life because Jesus was tempted, Jesus was tested, in all ways as we are, yet without sin. Never think that Jesus doesn't understand what exhaustion is. Never think that Jesus doesn't understand what it is to think you've given everything you can give and you've got nothing else to give 
you're just so tired, you just want to go to sleep. Because Christ has been there. You know, the last several years, <laughs> touches me to think about my stepdaughter as a mom. First comes little Anna, not so difficult to handle, but still a child is challenging. And then the twins come along. How does a woman go night after night after night not getting sleep? I think of uh, Stuart Elaine's daughter, Rachel, two children, and they're not sleepers. How do you go night after night after night not getting enough sleep? You're doing what God wants you to do. There's nothing, nothing more godly than motherhood. You're doing what mom wants you to do. And you're bone tired. You're exhausted. Who understands that? <coughs> Jesus does. Jesus does. What a precious thing. What a very precious thing. But at the same time, in this story, that only increases the sense of crisis that the disciples are going through because, look, we're in trouble. <laughs> and there's our help. <laughs> totally asleep. He's oblivious. Well, that leads to the second aspect of that story. Uh, the second major thing that we see going on here is that uh, <laughs> you can be faithfully obedient to Christ, but you can have a perspective on Jesus that actually confounds your confession of faith in Jesus. We see in verse 38 that the disciples, under these circumstances, they cry out. They're filled with fear, and so they shout to Jesus, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I like what one translator has says. Do you not even care that we are going to drown? Now, you get their fear and you get their reproach. Look, Jesus, we're in trouble, big trouble, and you're taking your ease in Zion. You're sleeping. This just doesn't fit. How often, though, have you been in the midst of a crisis and things have been overwhelming for you and... You want God right here, right now. And it doesn't feel like to you that he's showing up. That's what the disciples were feeling. We're in trouble. He could fix it. But he's not. He's asleep. Now, you can't imagine that they shouted this to him as the storm began they don't shout this to him until the storm has begun, the wind has howled, the waves have gotten bigger, the boat is all shaking up, and the waves are pulling over. The boat is already beginning to fill up. With, I mean, I think they're thinking, he's going to wake up. He's going to take care of this. He's going to see this. He's going to wake up. We're not going to say anything. And finally they realize, he's still asleep. You and I have gone through life as Christians and we've been experiencing trouble and we think, God knows, it's okay. 
God knows it's okay. God's going to handle this. And things get worse. You're not specifically praying about it. You're just thinking, God knows it. God knows about it. It's okay. It's going to be all right. And it gets worse and worse and worse until finally you say, God, where are you? In the midst of all of this, where are you? And the disciples see Jesus asleep. And that translates to them, God doesn't really care. God and his inactivity right now with respect to my need, God doesn't really care. God, look, here's the agenda. Danger, danger, Will Rogers. Danger, danger. Are you not going to respond? I think we've been there. I think all of us have been there. Where we're going through a really hard time and we're saying, God, why are you not taking care of me? Why have you abandoned me? And and all of that must have been going on in the minds of the disciples. This story, clearly in the providence of God, this story was designed in the life of our Savior to speak to just such situations that we go through. Because when we come to the last part of this story, I want you to understand. If Jesus is asleep, you are okay. No matter how big the crisis is in your life, If Jesus isn't doing anything about that crisis right here, right now, it's because it's okay. When Jesus sleeps, when Jesus isn't doing anything for your situation, it means your situation, no matter how bad it looks to you, your situation is okay. Think about this. They wake Jesus up. He's going to speak to the elements. He's going to speak to the disciples. And in speaking to the elements, he he demonstrates his sovereign control over all things. Now, that makes the story incredible because the sleeping represents his humanity, clearly testifying to the true humanity his awaking and rebuking the, the, the winds, rebuking the ocean, telling the ocean to be, to be still, his sovereign deity. Here we have the true nature of the incarnation revealed in a very powerful way. Who is Jesus? Jesus is truly man. Jesus is truly God. And the story demonstrates this in such a powerful way. In fact, whether it's Ryle or some of these others have said about this passage, clearly this is not the artifact of mythology making. If you wanted to present Jesus as God, 
then you would have had Jesus in control much sooner than this. You wouldn't have someone who has the sovereign nature of God fall asleep because he's exhausted. Clearly, the details here represent something that so happened to the disciples and a perfect balance of humanity and deity displayed. So Jesus demonstrates by virtue of his exercise over this who he is. And then Jesus speaks to his disciples in verse 40, and I want us to see that it is a reproof. He's admonishing them. But he does so with two questions. Why are you so afraid? And and do you still not have faith? Now, truthfully, the disciples needed to be admonished because Jesus had already given them so many evidences and indications of his sovereign power over creation and proofs that he was truly the Son of God. He had complete command over the demonic realm, and and all of the demons he had encountered up to this point had recognized him, and the disciples had heard these demons say, you are the Son of God. So even though it's not the testimony you want, (laughs) the disciples had heard the truth on the mouth of demons. You, Jesus, you're the Son of God. Jesus had healed all manner of diseases. There there wasn't any affliction that was too difficult for Jesus. Jesus didn't have to say to the crowd, Dear ones, I have the sense that somebody out there has something going on in his back. (laughs) Every, Every charlatan faith healer that has ever plagued the church over the centuries, my goodness, Jesus had sovereign power over every disease. He had also forgiven sin. Who but God alone can forgive sin? The disciples had heard Jesus say to the man, to prove to you that the Son of Man has authority upon earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, take up your pallet and walk. And the proof that he could heal was also the proof that what he said about forgiving sin was true. Jesus called himself the Lord of the Sabbath. There's no Lord of the Sabbath except God himself who created the Sabbath. How in the world could you be Lord of the Sabbath unless you were making the claim to be God? To be Lord of the Sabbath is to be the sovereign authority over the last day of the creation week. And if you're the Lord over the last day of the creation week, you are Lord over every day of the creation week. You are the Lord of creation as well as the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus had faced a number of confrontations against the Pharisees and the scribes. They were always the losers. <laughs> and he taught the good news of the kingdom of God that had come and was planted in their midst, even in himself. So we read here that Jesus rebukes them, reproves and admonishes them with two questions. They should have had faith. They should not have been so fearful. But notice the grace 
toward their weakness. There's no long lecture. There's no tirade. There's no dressing down. There's nothing here that looks like they were getting spiritually chewed out. Jesus was tremendously gracious to their spiritual weakness in the midst of the crisis. And I want to say that you and I will always find the Savior relating to us in this way. When life is greater than we can handle, and brothers and sisters, life has always been greater than you can handle. You have always needed to lean into God. That's why in Proverbs it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. You have always needed the care and the support and the strength of Almighty God at work in your life. And so we've had any number of situations in which we haven't trusted God, where we have leaned upon our own understanding, and therefore we have found ourselves in situations in which we are fearful and of little faith. You know, we have greater proof of God's care and power than the disciples ever did before the cross. Because we have the cross, we have the resurrection, we have the Apostle Paul telling us that all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. Paul telling us that if God is for you, who can be against you? We have Paul saying that God has demonstrated his own love toward you and that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. As well as saying that if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more now that we're reconciled, we shall be saved through his life. Yet still, knowing all of this, we are often weak in faith. We are often fearful. But nevertheless, God is gracious toward us, having said to us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is gracious toward you. God is gracious toward me. As David penned in Psalm 103, he knows our frame. He remembers we are but dust. Now it's interesting then when we see the disciples' reaction to what Jesus does. They're actually now displaying a different kind of fearfulness than which they had first experienced against the raging elements. It says they, will feel, they were filled, in verse 41, with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You see, there are two words for fear in this passage. When Jesus says, why are you so afraid? That's a word of fear that means timidity and cowardice in the face of a situation. But now we read that the disciples were, were filled with a great fear. And this fear is a word that indicates not the fear of being a coward, not that kind of fear, but a fear that what they are facing is now so great, so awesome, so incredibly dangerous 
In fact, the realization is, is that this person in the boat with us is more dangerous than the wind and the sea that was threatening our life. How do you understand that kind of fear of the Lord? Somehow, as we grow spiritually as Christians, we have to reach the point where we can connect it to what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, 28, and 29 when he writes these words. And therefore, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a pussycat. No. For our God is Jesus meek and mild. No. For our God is a consuming fire. And no matter how intimate your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ becomes as a Christian, no matter how closely you feel that that God is your sweet father and Jesus is your elder brother and the Holy Spirit is your sweet comforter, the infinite distance between God and you never changes. And God is the ultimate, almighty sovereign over everything. And God has never in any way lowered his holiness in order for us to have fellowship with him. Instead, this holy, holy, holy God has had to annihilate sin in the person of his son in order for us to have fellowship with him. It is always a fellowship and only a fellowship based upon Christ. There is no familiarity with God because somehow God has become buddy-buddy with us. There is only fellowship of the living God because he has brought us nigh unto himself at the cost of the infinite sacrifice of his son. And our God remains and always remains, even when we are in entirely the state of grace, a consuming fire. And therefore, our worship of him ought to be in reverence and awe. Conclude this way. When you're in danger and Jesus is asleep, it's all okay. It's all okay. Because the truth is, Jesus is the Savior who is sovereign over all of the affairs of our lives. And as we come to know that more and more, then we will grow in faith and grow less afraid of circumstances and grow in that deeper fear of God that is reverence, which is awe, and which is a sense that nothing in this world is ever so dangerous as God. And he has reconciled us to himself and made us safe in him because of the work of his son. I want to conclude with what I think is a a precious, precious statement of what it means to have this abiding faith in Jesus and to understand this. And the way I concluded the service uh, Thursday night with respect to Clarence. And to me, it's just a precious, precious statement of what it means to be a Christian. And I think it's the ultimate place to go with respect to learning the lessons of this passage here about the storms of life. It's the question and answer to the Heidelberg Catechism, question one. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, 
but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who, with his precious blood, has fully satisfied for all of my sins and delivered me from all of the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live for him. I am so grateful that life is fine, it is well with my soul, even when Jesus is asleep. Let's pray. Father, help us, help us, help us, we pray, to appreciate the lesson of this story, to understand that we are safe in Jesus. And help us to trust that. Enable us then, Lord, to go forward in life, resting ourselves in Jesus again and again and again, knowing that because of what Jesus has done, we are henceforth willing and ready to live our lives for him. In Jesus' name, amen.